1870s in the small Texas town of Oracle, the local marshal is gunned down in his office one morning for unknown reasons by unknown assassins. The mayor sends for a replacement, but he could take a week or more to arrive. In the meantime, when nobody volunteers as interim marshal, his widow steps up in a surprise move and takes the job. She's dead serious about her responsibilities and goes on a rampage cleaning up the local criminal element, including the local watering hole, with its debauchery and whatnot, all in an attempt to find the person responsible for her husband's murder. This is the setting of today's film, as Gordon and I continue with History Month here on the podcast. While Jeff takes a holiday, we're tackling the 1976 Roger Corman western Gunslinger on episode 29 of Celluloid Days. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Hello, folks. While Jeff is away on a much-needed summer break for the month of July, I'm bringing in my spouse, Gordon, who happens to be a history guy, which means historical-themed movies. So welcome again to History Month. This week, for our fourth and last film of July, it's time once again for a Rift film. This is a film that the geniuses at Mystery Science Theater 3000, Cinematic Titanic, Rift Tracks, etc., covered by doing a running commentary under the movie. Sometimes heckling, sometimes weaving in pop culture references, sometimes pointing out strange filmmaking faux pas, always making bad films, or sometimes even good films, hilarious. This week, we're talking about another classic Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode, that being episode 511, the Roger Corman Western Gunslinger, starring the delightful Beverly Garland in her pre-Dodie from My Three Sons incarnation, and the very manly John Ireland. It's a pretty typical clean-up-the-town plot, but with that Roger Corman touch that makes it oh so special. With weird editing, dance numbers, and many of his usual actors, it's basically comfort food for fans of the Corman MST filmography. Look, I'll make you a deal. I won't try to make you a bad woman. You stop trying to make me a good man. This is more than the story of a colorful man. It's the reliving of an era in a time without morals, of the kind of adventures the historians of the West only whisper about. Roger Corman, born in 1926 and still with us as I write this, is a literal film industry legend. He's that rare guy in the industry with both creative and business talent, but I think the most amazing thing about him is that he seems to be devoid of the overweening ego that cripples many an aspiring filmmaker. Yeah, a lot of his films are grade B schlock, but he got them done and always made a profit. A lot of big names learned their craft under him. Actors and directors like Francis Ford Coppola, James Cameron, Ron Howard, Jack Nicholson, and many, many more. 
Sometime in the 1950s, Corman got a wild hair to make a Western, but he wanted to steer away from the typical man against the bad guys tropes. What if the hero was a woman instead? Later in life, Corman said, the idea for the script came to me all of a sudden. It was the sheriff's wife. He's killed and she takes over for her husband. It was logical when it wasn't, but that was enough for a six or seven day Western. Now, why the proposed short filming schedule? I mean, six or seven days is a really short shooting schedule for a serious feature film. Well, IATSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, the union for film crews, was in negotiations with the studios to go from a six-day work week to a five-day work week. Corman saw this as a challenge to get a film done quickly to avoid the additional costs of the new union agreement. He hired Mark Hanna and Charles Griffith, who had already written a couple of spec westerns for him, to take that concept and run with it and the result was Gunslinger. The original title was The Yellow Rose of Texas, but somebody must have whispered in his ear that maybe that was a bad idea. After all, The Yellow Rose of Texas was a legendary, real, possibly, person who wasn't much like Rose Hood. I won't go into it here, but just throw the keywords Yellow Rose of Texas and Santa Ana and Battle of San Jacinto into your nearest search engine and you'll see what I mean. Corman had a stable of talent that were his go-to actor pool in the 50s and 60s. Both Beverly Garland and John Ireland, the film's leads, had worked with him before. The sultry Allison Hayes, playing the sly, hard-driving saloon owner Erica Page, was often his choice for a bad girl part. Other regulars like Bruno Vesota of Giant Leeches fame and others was a natural. Jonathan Hayes, the toady Erica keeps referring to as Little Man, is actually responsible for bringing screenwriter Griffith to Corman's attention. Then as now, it's all about who you know. All film productions, especially on location, away from the comfort and convenience of a studio lot, are fraught with difficulties, and this one was no exception. They shot the whole thing at the Jack Ingram Western Movie Ranch at the north end of Topanga Canyon, northwest of Los Angeles. Back in the day, that would have been one of those classic Old West sets way out in the Tulis, like all the locations in Simi Valley, not far from there. Today, 60-plus years later, it's just north of the west end of Mulholland Drive and utterly surrounded by thick development. One of the first scenes they shot on day one was a love scene with Rose and Kane in a tree. The sky was clear and bright, but the tree was full of red ants. The actors were troopers and soldiered their way through the scene despite numerous bites. That was their one good weather day, because after that, the skies opened up and dumped rain for the rest of the week. Some scenes were rewritten to be shot indoors. Many outdoor scenes were shot with a tarp over the cameras and another one over the actors. The rain made it noisy, but the film score helps to mask it. There was so much mud that at the end of each day, the company just left their equipment where it was. Corman didn't bother hiring security for the nights, saying, quote, anyone who'd come out here, steal the equipment, and carry it through this mud is welcome to get it, unquote. 
As often happens, with or without adverse conditions, but usually with, there were several injuries during filming. One action scene called for Beverly Garland to dash out of the saloon, leap onto her horse, and speed out of town. In her enthusiasm, she jumped right over the saddle and off the other side. On the second take, she twisted her ankle running down the saloon stairs, but finished the scene anyway. By the next day, her foot and ankle were so swollen they had to cut her boot up the back and tape it on, but by golly, she finished her scenes. At another point, Allison Hayes' horse skidded in the mud and threw her, breaking her arm. Years later, Garland quipped that she thought Hayes had deliberately come out of the saddle hoping for a ticket out of the film. Instead, Corman quickly shot a bunch of close-ups of Hayes looking in different directions and doing a series of reactions to plug in later, all while waiting for the ambulance. In the end, they went a day over schedule, finishing at seven days. Corman later called Gunslinger one of the worst experiences of my life. Allison Hayes really did want out, but Beverly Garland considered Rose Hood one of her best roles, saying, I think I was the first woman to play a marshal in a movie western. Roger would often cast against type in those days. I could never resist a plum role like a lady marshal in a genre that would never have considered such a gender reversal like that before. However, working with Roger was always an adventure, and this film was no exception." Unquote. Garland would later go on to play a policewoman on the television series, I think it was called Undercover, Colin Policewoman, which was basically the first version of the TV show Policewoman, which later aired in the 70s, starring Angie Dickinson as the undercover cop. So um, eventually Garland was recognized for being the first woman to play a police officer on television. The film was released in 1956 to mixed reviews, garnering praise for its startling twist on a conventional Western movie plot and the strong performances of the female leads, but criticism for a confusing and sometimes ridiculous storyline. Even Corman later commented on the fact that by the end of the film, they had basically killed off most of the town. Years later, the obscure little Western was given a new lease on life when Mystery Science Theater 3000 picked it up for their fifth season. John Ireland, the gunslinger, a man with a price on his head, hired to kill the woman he loves. Beverly Garland, who upholds the law, victimized by love. The setting for this film is the town of Oracle, Texas, in the late spring of 1878. Texas was still a pretty wide open, wild and woolly place then, and like our previous choices for films to go over, a great setting for a story. Texas was just getting over the challenging years of Reconstruction, where the Northerners, victorious in the late Civil War, were <laughs> trying rather unsuccessfully to impose their political views on their former countrymen, then enemies, now countrymen again. Politics were rough and tumble. The cattle industry, which was the main source of income in much of Texas, was rough and tumble. And the Comanche and Kiowa had only recently been defeated and reduced to government wards. And the Texas-Mexican border region was, as usual, wild and woolly. In such a context, the coming of the railroad was a seriously important economic boon for any town in its path. El Paso, for example, saw a huge increase in population and violence in the early 1880s when four major railroads congregated there at the same time. 
So the basic plot for the story, wherein the saloon owner Erica Page is buying up all the important property along the proposed rail- railroad right-of-way in a scheme which promises to make her rich if the railroad does go through town, with plans to skip out of town with what she can grab if it doesn't, is pretty much normal. And frankly, it's not really a fantastical plot. These sorts of things were seemingly common in the era of robber barons, gold rushes, and get-rich-quick deals. However, even though Dodge City in El Paso supposedly served up a dead man for breakfast every morning due to shootings, stabbings, etc., fueled by alcohol and available women, the high body count and complete disregard for the bodies of the recently deceased seems a little bit over the top. I suspect that with the level of violence, the governor of Texas would have sent some Texas Rangers to figure out what in the heck was going on there, just like what was done in the case of El Paso. Local law. On Saturday. And now it's time to get into the Rift version of the film. In the intro of this episode, Joel and the bots are playing Kaboom with Tom's head. The older of us among the listening audience will know what Kaboom was. It involved blowing up a balloon and being the one to get it the biggest without actually popping it. Anyway, their goal is to pop Tom's head. The bigger Tom's head grows, the more his mind expands and the more knowledge he accrues until he reaches the inevitable question, why did the network cancel Manimal? The first host segment after the commercial break is involves uh, the usual invention exchange, with they, which they did throughout the Joel years. Because Joel was a started out life as a stand-up comedian, and he did prop comedy, so he was big into making cool props. What they came up for this episode was, down in Deep 13, the Scanner Planner. Oh, hello, booby. Say, do you want to make people's heads explode? Sure, we all do. Well, my invention exchange this week is a study guide I put together called the Scanner Planner. It's filled with lots of life's little instructions on how you can scan people's brains and make their heads explode. Meanwhile, up on the satellite of love, Joel and the bots come up with wiffle stuff. They basically take the wiffle ball and make other things wiffly. But I've come up with something even cooler. Wiffle cheese. Hey, wait a minute. This is just Swiss cheese. That's right. It's nature's own wiffle. Then we're off to the movies for MST's first Western. Leading off with some trademark Corman editing oddness, where we actually see some bad guys sitting just in frame, waiting for their action cue. Uh, Cue the horses. (laughs) Corman. Oh, she is slick. How'd she slip by us? Marshall Hood is played by William Shallard, who's probably best known for his role as Patty Duke's dad on The Patty Duke Show a few years after this was released. Naturally, there's a, hey, how's Patty, quip. After our first tragic plot point, the opening credits roll with some artsy 50s animated credits. When we cut to the action, a Pony Express writer zips by, leaving the camera to pan over to our second scene, the Marshal's funeral. 
This is a good point to add to Gordon's history stuff, a bit about the Pony Express. It figures so prominently in so many Westerns, it feels like it must have been a fixture of the Old West for many years. But in reality, it was only in service one year before the trains started coming through and the telegraph went up. But it's just so colorful and iconic that everybody wants it in their Western. Anyway... The opportunity to make a quip about that isn't lost on Joel. Oh yeah, sure, I'll deliver your plans for the telegraph, you bet! For some reason, one of the assassins even shows up to the graveside service. The widow recognizes him, grabs the deputy's gun, and drops him. Hilariously, the scene just keeps going. Nobody seems to care about the additional corpse. Rose wants somebody to step up and take the marshal's place, but nobody volunteers. So she takes the job. Pin it on. Pin it on who? On me. We cut to the saloon, where Erica Page intends to keep that place open all night, again, in defiance of local ordinances. Erica tells Marshall Rose to pound sand. Rose shoots out the light and a girl fight breaks out. All I can think about watching Garland and Hayes rolling around on the floor is how disgusting a real saloon floor would have been. Two words, chewing tobacco. Anyway, Erica is cheesed and sends her toady Jake to Tombstone to get a hired gun. Even in a modern car, that would be a long drive. Why didn't they pick a Texas town? Oh well. Then we get a montage of Rose enforcing the law at gunpoint, administering a whole lot of frontier justice. Well, I'm pretty sure he was a bad guy, yeah. Next, we meet the mayor, who just can't stop talking about his escapades as a Confederate captain in the War of Northern Aggression. He's on to Erica's scheme to profit on a potential rail right-of-way, noticing she's been buying up land along a certain route. After that little moment, Toady Jake strolls in and announces he's found the perfect muscle. Gunman Kane Miro. Then it's time for the next host segment. Here, Joel and the bots are laying in caskets, talking about death and what kind of funeral they'd want. I think Joel wins this round, asking to be preserved and placed next to the mummy of Joseph Stalin. Then back to the movie, where we're treated to an impromptu standoff between Rose and a man-in-black-type gunman. Apparently, she's mistaken him for some ne'er-do-well and disarms him. And we get our first attempt at banter between our romantic leads. They head off together to find that bad guy, and I'll say this much, Garland can ride a horse. Unfortunately, Miro drops the suspect for some reason. More frontier justice, I guess. In a running theme, nobody seems to bat an eyelash about all the killing. They just seem to find it kind of routine, actually. Now we cut to the saloon, where Mayor Polk is delivering another one of his no-poop-there-I-was accounts from the late unpleasantness, when in walks Kane Miro, who, surprise served under Polk in the war and has a thing or two to say about it. Mr. Mooney's of the Old West. Private Kane Miro. It is you. Hmm. You've got a good memory. But then that was something no one could forget, wasn't it, Captain? That he's got a good memory? Hmm. I thought you were dead. The good die first. Most people are morally ambiguous, which explains our random dying patterns. 
After that, Kane, who is naturally the gunman that Erica has hired, gets right down to business and asks Erica what she's hiring him for. Who do I kill and when? The local law. Oh, get a room. Oh, they did. Then it's down to some serious smooching. Well, smooching. Wink, wink. Meanwhile, Rose has done a Google search on Miro. Turns out he's a very bad boy. Kane Miro. One of the three states and five territories. For murder, bank robbery, stage robbery, train robbery, and uh, sundry somewhere. Neat. Take a look at your ledger, see if I'm wanted in this state. I haven't checked lately. My computer's down. But there's nothing on him in this county, so she just warns him to keep his nose clean. Then they exchange some more spicy banter. The next day, Rose sees Miro on his way out of town and decides to follow him on her conveniently tacked-up horse. For some reason, it turns into a high-speed chase. You knew I was following you all the time. So did everyone else in the now county. you caught me, what do you want? You're it. Well, that's a very good question. After a little chit-chat, they hear gunfire and find Toady Jake has robbed and killed one of Erica's business... Uh, partners. Another body for the pile. Now it's time for the third host segment. This time, they've got Crow dressed up as a Pony Express rider, and Gypsy is his horse. Maybe it's not such a great idea on a space station. Uh, turns out to be a little superfluous. Then it's back to the movie. Erica pays Kane Miro a visit in his, uh, room. Apparently, the filmmakers dressed every bit of interior set they had access to, and when Kane lets Erica in and the door opens outwards, it's kind of obvious that they've dressed a hallway to stand in for a bedroom. Yeah, just about to give myself a sponge bath. But doors don't open like that. There's a number. He's in the hall. <laughs> Crazy coming up here. In my hallway. Meanwhile, back at the jail, Rose and Mrs. Polk try to figure out what's going on. Mayor Polk has run off to hide from Miro, and Mrs. Polk is worried. Then we cut back to the hotel, where Erica is giving Miro a ration for being out and about with Marshall Rose. Erica leaves in a snit. Then Rose pays him a visit. He's very popular. Miro tells Rose why he has a bee in his bonnet over Polk. Turns out the mayor was a crappy officer who abandoned his men to be captured or killed during a, during a crucial battle. Rose tries to convince him that the war would have been lost even had Polk been a good officer, and he agrees to leave him alone. For now. The next day, Rose goes to check on Polk and, of course, leads Miro right to him. Dole. Polk tells Rose about Erica's railroad right-of-way speculation scam, though, so there's that. Miro's a good boy and doesn't kill Polk, and they ride back to town, where Miro immediately rides back out of town. Rose grabs her deputy, and they take off after Miro. I'm not making this up. Uh, so she followed him, and he followed her, and now she's following him following her. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's time for another high-speed chase. Miro arrives at Polk's hideout to find Rose and her deputy have already been there and spirited his quarry back to town. To town, of course. 
Miro shows up at the jail, and now it's time for a fist fight with the deputy. Man, this movie is just sitting on my head and crushing it. Ooh, right in my vast doughy midsection. Rose sort of breaks it up, then heads out to the saloon to make sure the dancers are leaving town. They're miffed, and Erica hints that she would turn a blind eye if something terrible happened to the marshal, and hands the girls a bonus. Rose meets Kane Miro outside of town, and they have a tender moment in a tree. Rose is tempted by his manly charm, but still insists that he leave town. She hasn't ridden far back toward town when she's ambushed by the <coughs> dancers who try to kill her by hanging. She's rescued by Miro, who's now a wee bit peeved at our Erica. She reminds him that he's under contract to kill Rose. So he goes on a bender. More than anything I ever meant in my life, I mean that. Except there was something I said a while back that I meant more than that. In the fourth host segment, Servo waxes metaphysical with demonstration of quantum physics in an attempt to explain the continuity issues in the film. Then it's movie sign and we're back in the movie. Erica, our saloon proprietress, checks in on drunk Miro in his hallway bedroom and he tries to put some moves on her, but she's all business, especially after he mentions Rose. She needs him to sober up and bushwhack the courier coming into town with the notice from the railroad, because if the rail line isn't coming through, her investments are worthless and she's going to have to skip town. In a moment worthy of the seediest soap opera, she returns to the saloon and gets ambushed by Toady Jake, who's psychotically jealous of Miro. Well, better do next week's schedule. What you asked for. Don't go lying like that again about how you love me. I, I, I love you. I, I'm going to kill you, but I'm going to use Kane Merrill to do it. All I have to do is pay him, and he'll follow you to the end of the world. When Erica threatens to kill him, Jake immediately runs to the jail and rats her out in a fit of pique. On his way, he runs into Miro, freaks out, and takes a pot shot at him initiating a sort of low-speed running gun battle, culminating in Jake's death at the foot of the stairs in the saloon. Another lackluster conversation over a corpse and another body for the pile. The next morning, Kane and Erica intercept the Pony Express writer and get the railroad letter. It's bad news for Erica. The railroad is going elsewhere. So Erica shoots the express writer in a rage, isn't that a federal fence? Anyway, she's all in a tizzy, I guess. When they get back to town, they shoot the deputy for some reason. Kane is on a roll. He's after Polk, but he shoots Polk's wife accidentally. Polk confronts Miro with a pitchfork, like you do, and naturally gets shot too. Rose swans in, and Erica signals to Miro to drop her at last. Yeah, but he shoots Erica instead, then gallops off with Rose in hot pursuit. They end up in an exchange of bullets and quips. Nice day for shooting rabbits. Actually, it's better when it's a little overcast. Got any way to talk to an old friend? Don't be a fool, Kane. I'm out here to kill you. I wouldn't do that to you. I know you've been missing on purpose, but it won't do you any good. 
You know, they should start dating other people. Mm-hmm. Yep, we're shooting. And Rose eventually tricks him into revealing himself by feigning injury. And it's all over for Miro. Oh, right in the hat. At this point, most of the town is dead, and Rose is fed up with it all. Well, goodbye, everybody. We're all dead. Oh, that's right. For the fifth host segment, Joel and the bots discuss the difference between the 1870s and the 1970s. Then it's time for mail call, and the bots have deep-fried the letters for unknown reasons. Down in Deep 13, Forrester finally makes Frank's head explode. We have a Facebook page, and it's called, naturally, Celluloid Days. Please join us there to comment and discuss the films we cover. We're also on Twitter at Celluloid underscore Days. We're always looking for film suggestions, and the more strange and unusual, the better. Our email address is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com, all one word. Feel free to email us for any reason, even if it's just to say hi. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you get this podcast. It will help others find the show. Thanks to all of you for listening. Jeff will be back next week for a dive into cinematic history, so be sure to tune in. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. The Dallas multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I'm 